although it's true that the Bible is incredibly diverse in its contents. And that's across every board. You know, it's written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, parts of it in Aramaic. Uh, It spans three continents and its places of origin, um, all revolving right around the Mediterranean. Um, It uh, spans thousands of years of history from its earliest books to its latest books. And it's written by people from all sorts of backgrounds, um, not just kings and prophets, but fishermen and doctors, uh, shepherds, and it's really diverse in that sense. Um, But for all that diversity, it is surprisingly unified in its message. In fact, it proclaims about itself that for all of those lowercase a authors, it really only has one capital A author. In other words, this isn't just a book that men wrote about God, but according to its own testimony, a book that God spoke through men. Um, All of that to say that one of the interesting things I find as we study through the Bible is how often something that's very specific and focused on the circumstances that prompted the writing uh, actually delved down into the very heart of the message of the scriptures itself, get down to the foundational levels of what Christianity is all about. This message this morning, this passage that we're going to look at, is one of those passages where uh, once we deal with kind of understanding the passage itself and see what it's saying, we're going to discover that it's talking about major things that touch on every basis of every, uh, every life at every time. Um, but in terms of the particular circumstances, Paul is writing to a church that he planted in the ancient city of Corinth in the first century. Um, he's moved on from there, and to some degree, the church has moved on from Paul. They have developed beyond him, uh, no longer seem to have much in the way of respect for him, and more importantly, have uh, found themselves in a very comfortable and applauded and popular expression of Christianity. Um, in fact, these dynamics of the city of Corinth of um, eloquent speech and presentations of wisdom and touring speakers and these types of things had so captivated the church that they were starting to manifest all of the negative sides of that within the church as well. Infighting and uh, party alignment and division in the body of Christ as well as pride and bickering and all of these things. And so Paul's been writing this letter to recalibrate and go, have you forgotten how this works? Have you forgotten where you came from? Have you forgotten the message that I preached to you? And most importantly, have you forgotten that we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified? And so he's been laying this out, and in doing so, he's been giving us a better understanding of how to view leadership in the church. He's pointed out that the way that they're responding is is merely human, is the way that he puts it earlier. It's totally natural. It's exactly what you would expect in any organization full of people, but the church is supposed to be something different. It's supposed to be something unique. It's not merely human, but something that's full of the Spirit of God um, and therefore looks different. And so as he's laid all these things on the table, his, his rhetoric, his intensity kind of reaches the pinnacle in this passage, and he transitions from Um, clear teaching and provocative rhetorical questions into flat-out irony and sarcasm. Uh, He's really pressing pressing it in full gear. And so as as we read this this morning, realize that everything that Paul says in this passage is somewhat um, hyperbole, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. He's really pressing the issue to show them how far off they are from the truth. Um, So with that being said... Let's read it together, starting in verse 8 of chapter 4. He says this, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's pray.
Father, so often it's hard for us to align ourselves with the truth uh, of your word because it feels foreign to us, it feels distant, the problems seem like they're not our problems but some ancient community um, in another part of the world. Um, But in reality, Lord, this is laying its finger on major issues of who you are, of who Christ was, uh, of what the church is to be, and therefore it has every... um, every string, every root going down to the heart, uh, touching us and our lives and our expression of church today. So I pray that you'd open our eyes to see that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I mentioned, it's important, even in the opening verse here in verse 8, to see the sarcasm that Paul is speaking of. If you weren't to read the context of what's going on, what we've covered the last few weeks, and you weren't to pay close attention, it almost sounded like he was commending them. Uh, Imagery such as uh, sufficiency and richness and even royalty, these are part and parcel of the Christian life. Jesus himself said, anyone who comes to me uh, and drinks what I give him will never thirst again. Uh, Jesus himself spoke as us ruling and reigning with him. Jesus himself spoke of the richness, riches available to us uh, in himself. That as Paul puts it in another place, that in Jesus Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places belongs to us. Um, but when he speaks it here, we know that he's speaking of something different. He's coming at it from a different angle. Specifically, notice what he says at the, at the end of verse 8. He says, would that you did reign. Okay, obvious implication here is that that's not what's going on. He says, the things that I'm saying right now, I really wish were true. I wish that you were on the throne. I wish you had everything. I I wish that you were rich. But what he's saying is everything that you think you are, everything you think you have, everything you think you know isn't true. That word already that he repeats over and over again is a key word here. You see, The Bible recognizes that what Jesus has began is not yet completed. This is why if you read the Gospels, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, sometimes he talks about it as a present tense phenomenon. And so he can say to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, if I cast out uh, demons by the finger of God, then surely the kingdom is here. And at other times he'll say, when the kingdom comes... And it can be confusing when you're reading it, but when you assess it, when you put it all together, what you recognize is that God's plan in Jesus Christ has began, but is not yet complete. It's strung between the fact that he has come and that he will return. It's strung between the fact that these things are starting, uh, but they have not yet been finished. And when we talk about the end times, the doctrines of of how things finish up, uh, we call it eschatology. And what's happened in the church in Corinth is that they have an over-realized eschatology. They have basically a heaven-on-earth paradigm. And so they're living as if everything they're experiencing is the complete and full and total offering that God has made available in Jesus Christ. They're already perfected. They're already rich. They're already arrived. They're already living like kings. Like I said, their, their mentality is one of heaven-on-earth And Paul points out here, uh, not that that is a misunderstanding of what God is going to do, but that they are a little bit early for the party. Already you feel this, and he says, would that you did reign, because then things would change for us as well. Notice, though, what he says here. um, Well, here, let's talk about this first in verse 8. He says, already you have all you want, already you have become rich, and without us you have become kings. Here's the greatest danger in the Christian life. It's not temptation. It's not enemies on the outside. It's self-satisfaction. It's feeling like this is it. I've arrived. This is all there is. I'm content. There's no reason to move forward, to press in, to look deeper, to keep reading, any of those things. All those things are left off the table because I have everything. And this is a, a mentality that the New Testament challenges in many places. It's the reason why um, Paul in Philippians says, even I as an apostle, not that I've attained, he says, but I continue to press forward into the upward call of Christ Jesus. 
And he says, anyone who has wisdom will believe the same thing. Anyone will know there's still a distance to go, farther to know, much more to enjoy in Jesus Christ, much more sin to be conquered in your own hearts, all of these areas. But the danger, the danger of self-satisfaction then becomes, if the reality is the journey's not yet over, the danger becomes that you stop walking and deceive yourself into thinking you've arrived. It's deception. That's what he's talking about here. That's why he brings in the irony. That's why he hits it so hard with sarcasm, because they're not seeing straight. In John's uh, book of Revelation, we find the same thing. John's told to write to a church, and he says, you proclaim yourself as rich and full and well-dressed and seeing, and he says, but I tell you the truth, you are blind and naked and poor and hungry. And he says, but if you come to me, I will feed you. If you come to me, I will clothe you. If you come to me, I will give sight to your eyes. See, that's the danger in the Corinthian church. The issue here is not that they've arrived and Paul hasn't. The issue is that they're completely deceived. And what they're living is somewhat of a fantasy and a dream. And the way Paul goes about combating this is not only to kind of make fun of this mentality, but to contrast it with his own life. Now remember that Paul is not just the man who planted this church, but he is one of the apostles, one of these men who were appointed by Jesus to establish the church as his representatives on earth, right? They're the sent ones, that's what apostle means. They were sent by Jesus, they go on his behalf. And so effectively what he says is, how can your life look so different than mine? That's where he draws the contrast, he says, don't you feel a little bit concerned that my experience of what it looks like to live for Jesus, to follow him, to proclaim Christianity is so different than yours? Now, let me give a little uh, preemptive warning. Uh, Paul's life is going to look tremendously different than ours. And it would be very easy this morning to go, well, yeah, but that's how things are in the beginning. It's, it's cutthroat and it's frontier and it's, it's like contrasting the difference between the founders of Seattle and everything they dealt with and what the city was and what it is now. And there's a sense where that's true. But I want you to notice this morning that there's something bigger, something broader, something deeper going on than just circumstances. Okay? The issue is not, is this a time period where Christianity is being persecuted or not? The issue is not, is this a place where Christianity has some cultural influence or not? It goes deeper than that, as we'll see this morning. So he looks at himself, and this is what he says in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Now, he puts together this whole image, and he says, when I think of my role in the church as an apostle... When I think of how or what God is doing with us in the world, he says what it reminds me of uh, is a, what he calls here a public spectacle. He says that we're all on display, but the imagery, um, sentenced to death, public spectacle, um, even when he calls uh, here in verse 9 as last of all, all three of these phrases put together, uh, a spectacle, the Greek word there is theater, right? On stage, on view for everybody. Uh, Last of all, as those condemned to death, the image he seems to be drawing on is that of a Roman triumph, okay? So when Roman armies would go to war and they'd return, they'd throw a big party, and the party would have a parade, much much like oftentimes uh, modern military escapades do as well. And the first ones in the parade would be the generals and the soldiers, the conquerors, and they would be, you know, applauded and, and uh, 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 praised and these types of things. Uh, and what would come next would be the spoils of war, anything that they had claimed in their victory, you know, piled up to great effect and, you know, big massive mounds of treasure and and beauty, and, you know, in the Roman world that would involve uh, slaves as well, and in the end would be the prisoners of war, chained, and not part of the parade to be praised, but to be spit upon, to be booed, uh, and this would be their procession to their place of death, where they would be publicly put to death uh, for losing the war. This is the image that the Apostle Paul is drawing on here, okay? Now, there is one other option, but it's probably a little bit early, 
This idea is public spectacle of those condemned to die also reminds us very much of the gladiators, right? These men who were imprisoned to, event, uh, to basically fight for their lives until they got far enough to fight for their death. And so, um, so they had a, they'd walk into the theater and they would uh, address the crowds with these words, those who are condemned to death greet you. And then they would fight to the death till one was left standing. Either way, the image is graphic, it's intense, and it's very surprising. This is the top tier of leadership in the church. These are the founders. And so here we have uh, the Corinthians, and where would they put themselves in that triumph? In the front row is the conquerors who have overcome because Jesus has come, clad and praised and enjoying all the spoils of war. And Paul goes, it's strange, I... I was there on that day. I see myself in that scenery. I think we're acting out the same play, but you know where we are? We're in the back of the line, chained and spit upon and booed and condemned to death. See the contrast there? Same with the idea of the gladiators. The uh, church in Corinth doesn't see themselves as duking it out on the field, knowing that death is coming with all of the intensity and graphicness and seriousness of that. They see themselves as sitting in the audience, Applauding and well-clothed and well-liked and well-respected. This is what Paul is trying to draw your attention to. And the reality is, he's not being hyperbolistic here when he's talking about his life. Okay? Paul writes another letter to Corinth because I, I hate to spoil it for you, but everything he attempts here in 1 Corinthians doesn't go very well. So he ends up writing again and it gets a lot more intense. And he gets to a point where he stops being so candid, or sorry, he stops being so guarded in the way that he talks about his life. And he says, okay, you want to hear what it's like to be me? You want to know what it's like, what Jesus has called to me, what the Christian life looks like on my, on, on my experience? And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is what he says. He's talking about these other leaders that they so respect, the ones that are uh, wise and applauded, who he calls in another place the super apostles, right? So, well, we're apostles, but the super apostles that you're so in love with, and this is what he says. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressures on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Life was hard for the Apostle Paul. And not only was he not well respected from the world who didn't identify as Christians and saw Christianity as some new um, sect that threatened uh, the empire, in fact, uh, but even within the churches, he was not well respected. Here's how he puts it in another place. He He says in the book of Galatians, another church that's having this divisive issue, he says, leave me alone. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. He says is, when you look at my wrists, when you look at my feet, when you look at my side, you find the same wounds you found in Jesus. His life was one of intensity and difficulty. And he's, he's, not, uh, he's not saying that that's what defines the Christian life, but this idea that the Christian life is without difficulty, without suffering, without dishonor or disrespect without pain or suffering, these things, that's where he goes, really? Even in his first sentence there, he says, I wish you were reigning because basically I'd give it a chance to sit down, right? I wish you were reigning because that's where I'm going and I wish I'd already arrived. But the danger is that they think, uh, they think that what they're enjoying is the fullness of the Christian life when in actuality 
It's got this fantasy aspect to it. And so he says here that we've been, uh, we've been a public spectacle. Okay? Now, notice this. If, if you attend here, if you're part of the church, you know that I say often that the church is to be a public thing. That we exist to be on display, to be seen. In the same way that in the Old Testament there was the temple, this place where people would come to interact with the presence of God, so also Paul will say later in this, chap- or in, uh, this book in 1 Corinthians that we are the temple of God now. That we are the place. And uh, so there's this public reality to it. But the way that he sees it playing out, what is it that draws people to God? What is it that displays his glory? What is it that paints who Jesus is? This is the question that's being asked. He says, we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Verse 10. Here he begins to contrast. He says, here's how you perceive yourselves, and here's, here's our reputation. First, he says in verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you were wise in Christ. Okay. What he's pointing out here is that Paul, in his life, daily is mocked. Mocked for what he believes and how he behaves, the choices that he makes. But the Corinthian church is applauded. They're respected. They're thought well of. There's... There's no cost or stigma to being a Christian in the church in Corinth. They identify as being part of the elite and the privileged and the upper echelon of society. And Paul says, but we, we're thought of as fools. He continues here. He says, uh, we are weak, but you are strong. And so once again, a contrast. There here, the church in Corinth flexing their muscles and uh, powerful and conquering, enjoying the best of life and putting their you know, foot on the neck of the worst in life. And, and Paul says, everything in our lives points to weakness. Even all of that boasting he did in 2 Corinthians that we just read, he, he says, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about weakness, and that's where I will boast, because in our weakness we are made strong, he says. But there's that contrast. He says, you were held in honor, but us in disrepute. Okay? Paul is Roman Empire public enemy number one, and they're, you know, um, enjoying invitations from the, you know, they're at the social events of the year. This is what he's trying to draw attention to. Now, there's something that you should notice here. This series, we've been talking about leadership, and the question of what makes a leader you can get behind has to be asked here. Because that's what Paul has been talking about. What do pastors look like? What do leaders look like? And here Paul says they look foolish, disrespected, and weak. According to the world's standards. Okay? So, what's really going on then is they're distancing themselves from Paul because they're embarrassed of him because he doesn't measure up, because he's not highly respected. But what he's trying to point out is that their cri- criteria uh, is incorrect. This, this should be said. This should be said because we live in a culture that finds celebrities where there's no reason for celebrity, right? All we have to do is follow somebody around with a camera for long enough, and now they're a celebrity for celebrity's sake. And don't tell me that the church isn't prone to the same problem. And so what happens is uh, suddenly we gauge the leaders of the church and the pastors of the church uh, by these same criteria. Are they respectable? Are they eloquent? Um, you know, uh, are they confounding and do they trump people with their speech? Uh, are they well-dressed and do they represent you know, the best life has to offer? Do they set trends in fashion? Are, there, are they on the cutting edge of what people think is hip? Are they strong? Strong is an important one, and here's why. Because later on we're going to see that when Paul gets in debates, when he's put down, when he's gossiped about, he responds in a very particular way, and for many of us, what a strong leader looks like is somebody who will fight back, right? Somebody who won't just lay down and take it, somebody who can stand up against the opposition and put them back in their place. And that concept has no place in the church, as we'll see, but all of these criteria can enter in. And Paul just says, things look so different for us as the apostles. 
the ones who Jesus chose, the ones who planted your church, the ones that have spread Christianity across the Roman Empire, does it look like any of these things you aspire to? Verse 11, he pokes that eschatological timeline bubble again. He says, to the present hour. He says, this isn't just how it began. It's not just, you know, the startup years of the church and now we're an established business. We're making money. It comes with respect and our name is getting out there. He says, to the present hour. He says, you want to talk about the now of Christianity? This is what it is. He says, again, in verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. How do you feel about poor leaders? He says, we uh, are poorly dressed and buffeted. And the word here means to be punched in the face, okay? Bruised and battered. He says, we're homeless, right? They're, they're drifters. Paul says, there were so many nights in that list we read where I was exposed to the elements, where I slept outdoors. One of the places he stayed one night was the middle of the ocean, right? That's what he tells us in that passage. He's, he's just a drifter. He's homeless. Verse 12, we labor working with our own hands, Now, in the Corinthian society, manual labor was looked down upon. And that's because the Greek philosophers taught that that was slave work, and the best life, the greatest life, was the one where you were freed up solely to capacities of the mind and of the soul, and you didn't have to do all that stuff to support yourself. Okay, But Paul comes into Corinth, and he won't even take the Corinthians' money. Instead, he goes into the marketplace and makes tents. And he does it every day. Paul's hands are covered in calluses and dirt. He says, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. He continues here. He says, when reviled, we bless. So when he's spit upon, when he's criticized, when he's culturally condemned, ostracized, and put out, he says, instead, we speak well of. We speak kindly to, we pray for, we seek the good of. Next, he says, when persecuted, we endure. Notice what it doesn't say. He doesn't say when persecuted, we fight back. The idea here is of bearing the blows. That's what it means to endure persecution. The idea here is that he just puts up with it and doesn't fight back. When slandered, we entreat. And so here, even when people are wrongly speaking of them, instead of coming to their own defense, they calmly and uh, with full hearts beg people to reconsider. That's what it means to entreat. And he finishes here, he says, we have become and are still like the scum of the world. Notice he puts it in the present tense again. Today, we are the scum of the world. Today, we are the refuse of all things. This first word for scum uh, is, is the stuff that you'd rinse off in a pot. Uh, the second word, refuse, is the stuff that you'd brush off, you know, of your boots as you traveled. Uh, he says, we're the scum and the trash of the earth. Now, we've got to be honest with ourselves. As we've already seen as we've gone through this study, we like to identify with people stronger than ourselves, better than ourselves, better looking than ourselves. We like to um, stand behind people who have much to say, and this is the origins of Christianity, scum and refuse, the offscourings. In fact, this word was used in a really interesting way in some places in the Greek world. Every once in a while in the Greek religions when things were going really bad, they'd take people from the lower class and they'd sacrifice them as human sacrifices to try and get the God's attention. It's this word that he uses. We're we're the untouchables, he says. We're the least of all society. We're the disrespected and the valueless. Think of this idea of scum and refuse. This is the leftovers, right? You use all of the good parts and the only thing you can do with these parts is throw them out. This is how Paul identifies himself. This is how Paul sees what he is, and not just as circumstantial, but as calling. Right? Remember what he said? He said, I think that God has put us in this place. I think this is exactly the way it's supposed to be. I think this is where we're supposed to stand. So what's really going on here? 
What's the difference between these two viewpoints? Is it really about leadership? Is it really about beginnings? Is it just the difference between a normal pew Christian and somebody who's on the you know, front lines preaching the gospel to cannibals? Is that the difference that we're talking about? No, 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 no. no. See, this, this is ultimately and deeper a bigger question, which is how does mankind best glorify God? Martin Luther understood this. Luther resonated deeply with Paul in his struggles because he was constantly on the run. He lived in hiding. He, uh, you know, was, I mean, how many of us can say that we've had multiple, multiple books written against us, criticizing us for who we are? Um, constant rumors that he was dead or alive or plotting the death of the emperor. This was, this was Luther's life. And in his Heidelberg Catechism, where he's basically trying to explain to his own order of monks where he comes from, uh, the truths that he presented in his 95 Theses, the ideas that led to the Reformation, his criticisms of the Catholic Church, he says it basically comes down to two theologies, a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. He split it into two different ways. This, this is the difference between these. The theology of glory says that God is most glorified and we are most effective as Christians when we are in the high places, when we are respected, when we're in places of influence, when we are looked to, and then because we have that place, we have the opportunity to speak of God. So God is most glorified when we're most glorious, is the idea of the theology of glory. And let me just point out, that's not just a Christian idea. It doesn't matter what camp you stand in, what idea you present. That's the general way that we think about things is if you can engineer yourself to the top, then you can speak. If you can, you know, uh, just one example. Maybe your only goal is to do well in life. What's the great Bible to that? How to win friends and influence people. That's a theology of glory. How do you earn their respect and therefore influence them? How do you accomplish much in the world? See, here's the problem with the theology of glory. The greatest, most revealing piece of who God was is when Jesus became a man and was born in a cave because there was no room for him. And when his parents, when his parents did the Jewish thing and kept the commandment to pre- present an offering on his behalf, they presented just a turtle dove instead of an ox because that was the poor offering and they didn't have more money. And he grew up in the backwoods of Nazareth where nobody was respected because it was just that type of place. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Let's not forget the fact that he was one of the consistently most despised races in human history, the Jews. He lived and he took up a trade and he learned, like his father, to be a carpenter. And his hands, before they were scarred with death, were calloused. And slivered with wood. And as he began his ministry, was he received? Was he rejoiced in? Not most of the time. He was despised and rejected by men, just as Isaiah said he would be, according to the plan. He was defamed and misunderstood and plotted against. When it all came down, he was treated unjustly, abandoned by his friends, betrayed put on the most public spectacle form of all, persecu- or of all um, death sentences, right? Not quietly and privately in some prison room, but right on the main road entrance into Jerusalem, hung on a cross, naked and exposed for hours until he could no longer breathe. And God says, you want to know who I am? Look at Jesus Christ. And what does that mean for us? It means, it means that the theology of glory doesn't resonate with the most glorifying thing that ever happened. The thing that most revealed God, the thing that most pointed to him, the thing that made him the most clearly beautiful was the most despicable and hard to look at and graphic and uh, rejected reality. You see... Paul didn't start something new. He's not trying to create a new philosophy of how the church works. He's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus who said, look, if they hate the master, they'll hate the servants. Jesus who said, listen to me, you will have tribulation. Jesus who said, yes, just like me, so they will treat you. 
Jesus who said, blessed are those who lose everything for my sake. That's the theology of the cross. It says that the place where God is most glorified, the place where the Christians are most effective, the place where the gospel is proclaimed the strongest, and most important, the place where God's worshipped in the most visible way, it's not always like we'd like to think. Just, just as a counterpoint, look at Paul's life. Look at all that he accomplished. Never having been a politician. Never having been given, you know, a column in the Roman times. Never having been respected at all, but constantly mocked. By the time he dies, there are hundreds of churches scattered across the Roman Empire. Hundreds of thousands of Christians whose lives are changed eternally. And what he begins continues on, and it continues to grow in persecution. Listen, Tertullian, writing a few hundred years later, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. To his critics and his apologetic, he said, you want to know why the church is growing? It's because you're killing us physically, putting us to death. That's where the growth is. And for many of us, we honestly believe that the seed of the church is the popularity of its celebrities. We get caught in this trap. And I want to be very clear this morning. This doesn't mean that if you have a place of influence, you should leave it. It doesn't mean that you should... Uh, you know, not utilize it. It doesn't even mean that God doesn't call Christians to be kings uh, or, or writers or anything else like that. But what we need to recognize is, A, God doesn't need that. He uses it. It's part of the plan. But the thing that grows the church, the thing where it happens, is most often when the church is rejected and despised and seen as the lowest of society. Isn't it interesting that now in American uh, culture, the church has kind of lost its influence? And all we can do is point backwards to the time when. But we speak as politicians. We speak as wealthy. We speak as uh, those who have had it all. And that's what makes this whole thing surprising. It's like, wait, but, but we're at the top. But that doesn't, just because the church is not growing in America as it once did. It's growing in other places in the world. It's growing in China, where people are continuously being thrown in prison. It's growing in, um, in Africa and, and in Iran, in these places where all of the Christians are being ran out. China's a good example. Okay? If you take China's history, you have what we call the Christian Inland Mission that began with, uh, with a guy named Hudson Taylor who just showed up and trained up a bunch of missionaries and started to work in China. And then as they started to have influence, as people were getting saved, China closed its borders to all missionary activity. And so everybody thought, well, that's the end. When those borders were finally opened, hundreds, somewhere between 100 and 200 years later, we found a thriving and huge church in China. There's something wrong with our perspective. Here's what it comes down to. We're living as if it were Sunday when it's just Friday. The life that Jesus painted for us looks a lot more like his death day than his resurrection day, and that doesn't mean that there isn't life and power and joy and glory. All of those things exist. But what did he say to those who would follow him? If anyone seeks to follow me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross and follow me. This is how the author of, the, author of Hebrews says it. He says, look, don't you understand that Jesus was crucified outside the city? And then he asks this question, are you willing to go out and be with him on the outside? Are you willing to be ostracized? Are you willing to be in the lowest position, despised and rejected by man? But here's the thing recognizing that the applause of the world isn't the right way to go, recognizing that there's enmity between the world and the church, I don't think is that surprising, but it needs to be said here that when Paul responds to that enmity, it's not in enmity, right? There's this danger that if we start to experience those forms of isolation and persecution, we begin to fight back. Listen, Christianity is not punk rock. It's not. 
When you read over Paul's description here, it looks nothing, nothing like the Sex Pistols or, or even the Ramones. You know, there's no anti-authoritarian presence in the Christian church. It's not counter the world and destructive. It's not anarchistic. Uh, its goal is not to, uh, you know, become king of the hill by te- tooth and claw. But he says, when we were criticized, we blessed in return. When we were persecuted, we bore it willingly. When we were defamed, we entreated. How? How can it be when, when what we need so much in life is affirmation, at least as modern Americans, you know what I'm talking about. We need to feel like we belong. How can he respond in such a way? It's really simple. It's because, yeah, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. You see, the reality that Paul knows is that whatever cost he bears in life, it's not the end of the story. Listen, death is the program for the Christian life, but that's because death leads to resurrection. What the, what the church in Corinth is living in is much like the temptation that the devil gave Jesus in the wilderness when he said, hey, look, I already own it all. It can all be yours. Just bow down and worship me. Don't worry about the cross. Don't worry about the rejection. The danger for us is the same, that we would settle for this illusionary place of influence and power, this man-made, homemade heaven when the Bible has already laid out the way that we get to life. It seems so inapplicable when we read it the first time, but recognizing where we're at as a culture where the church in years to come is going to be constantly challenged to side with the world or to stand up against it, to speak on issues or to bite their tongue, to take all of the criticism and the protests and the, all of these things um, or, or tr- try and quietly and privately, you know, maybe give up some ground to, to make headway later, all of these things. What we have to recognize here is this is to some degree according to the plan. And I want to say it again. Some of you know your church history, so you know there was an occasion where Constantine made Christianity an official religion and all persecution went away. I'm not saying that that was the wrong move. I'm not saying that the church, when, when, when society comes to the church and says, we'd like your help in shaping the empire, that's not a place where you go, no, no, we'd rather you hate us and kill us. That's not the idea here, okay? But for starters, just, just simple baseline, if you identify and recognize personally that you are the weak, the poor, the uninfluential, the ostracized, the outsider, God can use you. That's what he says to the Corinthian church. He says, you've come to this whole opinion despite the fact that not many of you who were wise were called, not many of you who were honorable. They saw Christianity as a way to get ahead in society. They were the poor. They no longer wanted that title. And so identifying as rich brought satisfaction to them. But the reality that he points to here is that God is fully capable of using the weak things of the world and the foolish things to confound the wise, and the things that are not to disrupt the things that are. But we have to watch out for using this over-realized eschatology metric for our lives, for the church at large, for our leadership, that tries to make the church respectable that tries to find a place of influence, that tries to take the same means to reach and change the world as is available to everybody else because God has chosen a confoundingly different way. I feel the pressure of this reality so much. I feel the danger of this from both fronts. One, because personally, I've always felt like an outsider. And so I constantly, just in normal life, apart from Christianity, have this desire to either establish that I'm just like everybody else or to make everybody else, you know, to demonize them and, and just make myself, the, but just flip the pyramid and say, look, I'm, I'm the counterculture, therefore I'm the real pinnacle, right? That's where I come from. That's what I know. But more than that, 
recognizing how quickly things are evolving in American culture and recognizing the weight of all these things and even, even the fact that I, like many of us, want to see the world change, want to see for their sake, out of love, the world know who Jesus Christ is. And yet there's this temptation to, um, you know, sell our birthright for settling for a comfortable way to go about this. This is what Martin Luther says. I've been chewing on it all week for what I imagine, if you're aware of even what's going on in the papers for the last two years, I imagine obvious reasons. This is what he says. He says, if I faithfully and completely proclaim the gospel in every issue, except for the one where the world and the devil is waging their warfare, then I'm not proclaiming the gospel at all. He says, if soldiers are fighting every battle except the front lines of the war, then they're not being faithful but fleeing. He says, that's where loyalty is tested. And so the question for us, even if it isn't right now, the question is quickly becoming again, what does it look like for Christianity on the outskirts? What does it look like for Christians as a minority position? And it looks like two things. One, it looks like not fleeing from those things. And two, it looks confoundingly a lot like love. Let me finish here. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul saw his life in light of the cross. He saw his life as a reflection of what Jesus had done as a continuation of Jesus' path to changing the world. And here he applies it to the church in Ephesus. I want you to hear how he says this. Speaking to them in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What's he saying here? He's saying that the most loving act in human history was crucifixion. That Jesus gave himself up as a pleasing sacrifice to God. And then he says we should imitate. And we're not just imitating it as an act of worship because sometimes this can be spiritualized, right? Well, laying my life down for God is a vertical action. With Jesus, it wasn't a vertical action. It was an offering to God on behalf of man. I'd encourage you to read Peter's first letter as he deals with the process and the dangers and the issues of suffering and persecution in the church. And pay attention to how often he makes comparison between the cross of Jesus Christ and the life of Christians because it's over and over and over again. And the most profound one to me is when he says, hey, people are going to sin against you. But don't forget that Jesus bore your sins willingly. And it's such a striking image to me because it means that this behavior is so outward focused. But the only reason, the only reason we can live that way is not because we're so uh, great or because we're so strong. It, obviously, all of that stuff falls away. The reality is because, because Jesus is alive. Because that same power that worked in Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1 says, that same power that raised him from the dead and lifted him up to the heavenly places and now works in him to intercess and will one day make him above every name, above all names. That same power, he says, is now working in you. But the way that it works, the way that we tap into the power, looks like death often. It looks like crucifixion. It looks like ostracization. Let's pray. Father, I know sometimes um, messages like this can make us uncomfortable, specifically because we know we're supposed to count the cost in Christianity. That's the way that you put it. But what we're bad at uh, is counting a cost in the way that values the reward in a way that rightly assesses things. That's why Jesus had to say such extreme things like, don't fear man who can take your life and then is finished. Fear the one who has the ability to cast you into hell. 
These intense statements don't point to, you know, um, unfounded threats to try and influence our lives, but a recalibration with reality. And God, we want to see you move. We have friends and family, neighbors, our city and our country and our world that we want to see experience the life that we know, encounter the peace and the joy that we have. And so often we feel like we need to put on a face like everything's okay, like we never do anything wrong, uh, like, like it's, the Christian life is all smiles, and we do it for that reason, because we know the world is watching, when in actuality, Lord, your strength is perfected in weakness. And when everything is taken from us and we still can say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, that's when people go, what is it that you have? I want that sort of peace. I want that sort of satisfaction. I pray, Lord, for the boldness to follow you wherever you take us and the humility to not see that as a, as a something that makes us better, a, a counterculture that just triumphs through, um, through being the, the top dog or, or the, the, you know, the odd duck, but instead, Lord, just recognizes that, um, that life is hard, that now is a time of suffering, now is a time of deception and misunderstanding, and at the same time recognizes the fact that you were present, that you give life. I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts and filter all of our thoughts, our decisions, our behaviors through a theology of the cross. That we would remember that what looks like the image of God looks like a God who became man and bore all of these things on behalf of us freely and willingly out of love. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.